this reading is right at the very end of John's Gospel, and uh, it's when Jesus appears to his disciples. On the, first, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nail marks were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Thank you, Claire, uh, for that reading. And can I just say thank you so much for being with us uh, here today. It's just a real tonic uh, to see you. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, for this service. Uh, we are tremendously uh, excited to be back in the building, although we know it's going to take some time uh, to get used to it again. Um, I was thinking this morning, you know, 13, 14 months ago, if you'd said to any of us that, you know, it's going to be over a year until we're back in the church building on a regular basis, we, we'd have thought you were absolutely bonkers. And uh, in, in one sense, I'm glad that I didn't know, because I think I might have been tempted to real despair if I'd known how long this was all going to last. Uh, but uh, we thank God for your friendship and your support and all the ways in which you have been engaging with and participating in what's been going on uh, here at Christ Church. And we're very glad to mark uh, this particular milestone with you as we begin to come back. But we know that there's still lots uh, to, um, to change in the coming months. 
We're going to briefly think about the passage uh, that Claire read so beautifully uh, for us. It seems to me that lockdown has heightened some of our senses and it's dulled others. Uh, And we've had a year of uh, living with a sense that our whole world has been turned upside down and everything that was familiar is gone and it looks such a strange and an alien uh, place. And that can really help us get inside the minds and the hearts of uh, Jesus' disciples the evening of that first Easter Sunday. They had gathered together, but they were not all together. Uh, The doors are locked uh, for the disturbingly obvious reason that uh, they fear that they're going to be next in line for uh, arrest or for worse. And each one of them had their own failure uh, to look back on. Uh, They'd failed in their duty to Jesus, in their love uh, for Jesus. They'd run into the night, scared and weak. And now they have no hope. And you may feel that's a familiar experience. What good would it be, they think to themselves, to make any kind of public stance uh, for Jesus now? It won't do any good at all. Uh, Mary was talking about seeing Jesus alive, but they didn't really believe her. Peter and John had found the tomb empty with those mysteriously, beautifully folded grave clothes. But nothing in their manner, as they're sat there together uh, in that room that night, suggests even one small pinprick of hope or any readiness whatsoever to encounter Jesus again. And so if we were there and we were looking at these, uh, these people, we would say this is game over for the cause of Jesus. And we could have predicted that in a few days, uh, these tired and hopeless and scared disciples are just going to slink back uh, to their old homes. And they're going to have to live out their days in dejection and defeat. So in our time together today, we're just going to very briefly think about what happened uh, to change that situation so radically. And as we do so, to consider, well, uh, what do we really need in order to do church and to be church uh, together? In particular, after this year or more, when so many of the familiar parts of church have been taken away from us, but yet uh, many of us would feel that our uh, faith has thrived and has deepened. We can't overestimate the majestic importance of the resurrection of Jesus as the thing that changed. Without that resurrection, there is no Easter, there is no joy, there is no peace, arguably there is no church. And I would say that all attempts to build church and to be church and to do church without the resurrection of Jesus will inevitably become either powerless moralizing or there'll be irrelevant storytelling. And John starts the passage that Claire read for us by just simply saying, Jesus came and stood among them. And I think even the fastest thinkers here in this room or the quickest and most ardent believers, we would have still, had we been in that room together with them, we'd have just stared open-mouthed at Jesus not able to believe that he was there in the flesh. 
And Jesus says to them those amazing words, peace be with you. How gloriously encouraging and how wonderfully understanding of Jesus. Those are the words that they most need to hear. Peace be with you. Those words say so much in so short a space. They confirm Jesus' identity. That was a phrase I think that he would have used often with his friends. They reassure the disciples in their frailty. Jesus knows how they're feeling. They radiate the reality of his resurrection. And they pave the way for them to come out of fear and confusion. Jesus doesn't condemn them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't hold a seminar. Uh, Rather, he offers them peace. Now, this has been our frequent foundation throughout lockdown, and it will remain so whenever and however and with whomsoever we do church. Our starting point, our foundation, is that same thing, the outstretched arms of Jesus and his assurance of peace and welcome. That's where we begin. And John goes on to say, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. I'm so glad that we took uh, our time in the run-up to Easter, if you were following us online, uh, considering the wounds of Jesus, wounds to his feet, his head, his hands, uh, his side, his heart. And that makes this moment of the story all the more poignant, uh, because we can remember that conversation about the nails uh, driven through Jesus' hands or wrists, and that callous thrust of the spear up into his side to make sure that he was dead. This is further confirmation, isn't it, that it is the same Jesus that they, are, they, that they knew and some of them saw die who now stands before them. Nobody else has pierced hands. No one else has a wounded side. And here we have the clearest sign possible that it is through those very wounds. It's interesting, Jesus is risen, but he's not healed. He still bears these scars of things that Thomas can potentially touch and see. The clearest possible sign that it is through those wounds that the peace that Jesus offers is realized. The peace Jesus offers was won on the cross. The cross looks like a place without peace, without love, and seemingly without hope place of violence and retribution and disdain and so we could never foresee that there would be an event that would lead to peace in the cross we would think it could only lead to sorrow and fear and contempt and yet here he is at the risen and wounded Jesus offering peace to his friends and that that is truly remarkable William Temple observes in his commentary on John's Gospel, he says this, he says, Only a God in whose perfect being pain has its place can win and hold our worship. For otherwise, the creature would in fortitude surpass the creator. 
There's no doubt, is it, uh, that all of us, even those of us who might describe our lockdown as broadly positive uh, or even as life-affirming, we would all say we know now more fully the pain of isolation. We know what it means to live in fear. We know what it means to think uh, that we might, uh, in a sense, die in a way that maybe we hadn't thought of uh, before. We have learned over this year what it means to be resilient, what it means to hold on through pain and through fear. And in that context, this gospel reading is even more magnificent. Imagine, if you, for a moment, imagine being invited to worship a faraway God who in all of their majesty and all of their magnificence had not the slightest inkling of pain, of what it means to suffer, of what it means to be terrified, and ultimately of what it means to die. Those experiences that are at the very heart of our own human experience. But we are not invited to worship a God like that, who is far away and distant and unfeeling and uncaring. We worship a wounded and abandoned and a risen Savior. And the peace, the perfect peace that he offers uh, is mediated through his own pain and his own suffering. And it's a peace that he gives to us so that we in turn might give it to others. You will remember maybe that uh, in this section we have, uh, Jesus goes one step further. He greets people with peace be with you three times in that reading. But he then moves the conversation on. He is with the frightened disciples, not just to show that he is risen, and not just to turn their tears to joy and not just to begin to explain how the crucifixion could possibly lead to peace. He's also there to commission his disciples to send them out and to send them back to a nervous and an angry and a hating world. Jesus sends them out at, at, right at that very moment. Maybe you and I would have waited a little bit longer, done a bit of caring and sharing and just sorted a few things out. But right there in the upper room on the first Sunday, what does Jesus do? He says, I'm commissioning you. I'm sending you out. Uh, your mission, says Jesus, is to continue my mission in the power of the Spirit. And so we learn from this particular bit of John that the primary purpose of the gift of the Spirit is to help us do that, to bear witness to Jesus. The, the gift of the Spirit is both to convey God's peace to us, but then also is to make us channels and vehicles of that peace. Uh, people who share it in our actions, in our words, in the direction and the momentum of our lives. And Easter is a, a wonderful time to be imploring God, please uh, send us more of your spirit. But as we do so, uh, we need to remember that we can't expect the gift uh, if we ignore the purpose of the giver. 
And the purpose of the giver is both to bless us with peace so that hope replaces fear and confusion. But more than that, we then take that peace out and through our lives and through our interaction uh, with people, uh, we are able uh, to share uh, his peace. Let's pause uh, for a moment and I'm going to lead us uh, in a simple prayer. Risen Lord Jesus, thank you for blessing us with your peace and presence today. We marvel at your wounds, those gnarly guarantees of love and hope. We gladly and wonderfully receive your Holy Spirit now. Send us out, Lord. May we, with our wounds and our words, may we, with our frailty and our failures, carry your peace and your forgiveness with us this week. 